Welcome to the Zen of Everything, a Zen take on life, love, laughter, and everything else. With Jundo Cohen, a real Zen master. That's me. And Kirk McElhern, that's me, a guy who knows a bit about Zen. I was just remarking how much you look like Peter Gabriel. Shock the monkey. Yes, remember that? That's from the early 1980s, isn't it? Yeah. Dates us. How are you doing there, Kirk? I'm doing okay. Remember, um, we, every day is a good day. Every day is a good day. We actually got some sun today. Um, not that it rains as much as people think it rains in England. It's not always like that, but the past month has been incredibly rainy. Um, my landlord is a farmer, and he and his farmer's son were telling me this morning they can't even go in the fields. It's so wet because uh, if they go with their tractor, it's going to sink into the, into the dirt. Well, we had a killer typhoon here in Japan this week. You did. In fact, we canceled our recording session last week. Did you get affected? Well, you know, there's a lot of people here uh, suffering. There are uh, rivers that overflowed, uh, even in central Tokyo. Uh, I Just stuff around uh, here I could fix myself uh, uh, with my two hands. Nothing serious, but let's uh, dedicate uh, this podcast to all the people out there who are affected by uh, natural forces. And don't let anybody tell you that this... Uh, climate change thing is made up because they never got typhoons like that uh, here uh, before. No, no. And and what's interesting is that water is such a powerful force. Uh, you know, in that game, rock, paper, scissors, water always wins. Flow like water. But uh, when the water's coming at you, get out of the way. Yeah. Okay. Um, so this week, we wanted to discuss the difference between Zen in Japan and Zen Let's say in the West, you before the show you were saying Zen in the United States, but I think in the West more globally is a better way to look at it. Ah, uh, yes, East is East, West is West, and never the twain shall meet. Exactly. I, I think one of the things that is interesting is how Westerners have this romantic idea of what Zen's like in Japan, and yet I think even on this podcast you've said before that Zen is just a, a, a trade that's passed from father to son just to, to carry out rituals in most of the temples. Well, that's uh, right. Uh, these days, I would say the vast majority of uh, Zen priests are the sons of fathers who were Zen priests. And the oldest son, typically, becomes a Zen priest or other kind of Buddhist priest to inherit and continue the family temple. Uh, the family temple is uh, passed down from generation to generation. Priests now marry. They have kids. And when the kid reaches a certain age, uh, goes to uh, perhaps a Buddhist university for a few years and then to the monastery for a couple of years where he's taught primarily in ceremony because his work will be to come back to the family temple to perform funerals and memorial services for the parishioners of the temple and to keep a roof on the place because a lot of the temples are not so prosperous and you have to keep, uh, how to say, you have to keep the dead bodies coming in, uh, keep the cemetery going uh, and keep the funerals going. It's just a matter of economics. 
When you first went to Japan, you had already been practicing Zen in the United States, hadn't you? Uh, yeah, I started actually in China, but that's uh, a long time ago um, when I was a student in China, and then I went back to the States, and that's where most of it was. But I've been in Japan for 30 years now. Right. And so when you first went to Japan, though, what sort of, what shocked you, what surprised you about the difference um, between the way Zen is approached? Well, you know, I came all starry-eyed, thinking that uh, everyone with a robe was uh, an enlightened being. And the fact is that, you know, we're all Buddha, but we're also human beings. And most of the priests I met were people who, well, let's say, maybe they were more interested in uh, running the temple, uh, performing those ceremonies, than, for example, Zazen. Most Westerners were interested in Zazen, Zen meditation. And you come to Japan and you find that it's really hard to find Zazen. The average Japanese person uh, doesn't really care about it. And it has a really bad image amongst uh, Japanese people. Uh, Japanese people think of uh, Zen meditation as something painful. Uh, maybe on a school trip, they're forced to sit Zazen. Maybe when their new company employees is a kind of, how to say, uh, indoctrination. They'll be sent for a couple of weeks to a Zen temple uh, because it's supposed to be tough and uh, break the spirit so they become good company employees. And then when they're done with that, that's their only contact, maybe their whole life, with Zen meditation. Uh, Could that also have something to do with the difference between Soto Zen, which you practice, and Rinzai Zen? No. Nope. No, because uh, what, what's that famous book about the Rinzai Zen practitioner? The uh, D.T. Suzuki's work? No, the one that was later the American who went to Japan who wrote the book. Oh, The Three Pillars of Zen. The Three Pillars of Zen. And if you read that, it feels like it's a sort of a boot camp. Okay. The Three Pillars of Zen is by a wonderful organization called and lineage called the Sambo Kyodan, the Harada Yasutani lineage. The Harada Yasutani people became impassioned, I, that's possibly not the right word, but about koan meditation and kensho. And you know, they're a tiny group here in Japan, not mainstream at all. Most of the mainstream Rinzai people, Soto people, have little or any idea that the group even exists. They operate out of a small house in Kamakura not a temple, uh, they have scattered membership throughout Japan. But what happened by the fate of history is they came to the United States and, and Europe to some degree and were very influential. So their image and their influence in the United States is far greater than their influence in Japan where they're virtually unknown. And That's interesting because if you look at the history of uh, Buddhism, Zen Buddhism in the United States. Um, first, you have D.T. Suzuki in the 50s and the 60s, and he was quite influential. Then, I, I think it's around the same time, the Three Pearls of Zen and Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. So right. you had those two books that were heads and tails. And since there were so few books about Zen, it just seemed that, well, these are the two styles of Zen, and they're pretty much equal. Right. And yeah, that's fine. The, the Sambo Kyodan people are very interested traditionally 
in the hard push for Kensho. And it said that Soto people, like I'm a Soto uh, priest, were just sitting, dropping all interest in, for example, particular experiences during Sazen. Uh, just sitting is enlightenment itself. And this is true. But you know, you come here to Japan, nobody knows anything about this. Uh, you know, I, I've been to Zen groups in Japan that, uh, just like in the United States, they're lucky if they have 10 or 20 members, mostly older people who show up later in life. Uh, maybe there's some younger Japanese people who are going through a crisis. Guy gets a divorce trying to find himself, looks for a Zen group. But uh, boy, I just went, by the way, I just went to Hanazono University, which is the big Rinzai University in uh, Kyoto. And I went to the Zazen group. And it was led by a priest. Now, Hanazono, I believe, has 1,000 or 1,500 students, something like that. The priest said one student shows up for Zazen. There's no rule that the students have to sit Zazen, of course, even though it's a Buddhist university. One guy seems like he's interested in Zazen. And the other people who showed up were older people. You know, it's funny because you, you talked earlier, you said something about J Japanese people think that Zen is old and, and it's not interesting. I've played Go for decades. Yeah. And for a long time, you would meet Japanese people and they would say, oh, it's only old people who play Go. But then something happened in sometime... That's not true. That's not true. Well, hold on. Then something happened, I think around the year 2000, there was a manga and anime series called Hikaru no Go, about someone who discovered the ghost of Shusaku, one of the great Go players from the, the 18th century. And yeah. all of a sudden, it was hip for young people to play Go again. Yeah, yeah. Well, I wish uh, something like that would happen in the Zen world and it would become <laughs> a hip. I mean, you know, mindfulness has come here and yoga has come here. And my joke is I have a small Zen group here in Japan. Uh, where I get a lot of foreigners to come and I get a few Japanese people to come. And it's really difficult to get Japanese people to come for many reasons. It's not just because, you know, I'm okay, I'm a foreign guy with a Zen group. That's a little suspicious to start with. But actually, that, you know, that kind of quirkiness might attract some people. The problem is Zen has such an image associated with death and pain. Yeah, okay. And I can't get Japanese. I was joking before, you know, the, the temple's got to get the dead people in. But it's yeah. true. People associate temples with funerals. When yeah. I advertise a Zen group in Japan, and I even put in, in the uh, newspaper, I put a little notice. I said, it's relaxing, it's enjoyable. Come to Zen. We're not going to hit you with a stick. I put that in there. But people still have the image that they're going to come, I'm going to beat them with a stick, it's going to be painful, uh, it's all about death, and uh, it's so different from the West. I joke that if I called my Zen group something like, happy fun yoga time, and I put on a pink, <laughs> pink tights instead of Buddhist robes and got rid of all the Buddhist statues and played like Indian music, I'd get a lot more people. Let me, let me tell you, I go to a yoga class at a little gym here, you know, it's just like a yoga class in America. They get plenty of people there because it's yoga. If I did that with the Zen group, I'd get people to come. I just got to get rid of all the Japanese and Buddhism out of it, and it would be fine. 
Well, you currently got a pretty loud Hawaiian shirt on. Maybe you should wear that instead of your robes. I have done that uh, sometimes to make a point that it's not about the clothes. There are times I put the robes on and do a ceremony, and there's a time I put a Pink Floyd T-shirt on or a Hawaiian shirt. It's not about the clothes. It's what's inside the clothes, you know? Yeah. So uh, I think it was last week that um, a Tree Leaf member from Mexico stopped by to visit and yeah. went to Japan on a pilgrimage. Yeah, he um, was shocked. <laughs> I, that's what I wanted to know. How shocked was he to find all of this? And you do mention this on Tree Leaf from time to time, so it's not new. But I guess when you go to a country, and for him it was a sort of a pilgrimage, it must have been a real surprise. Well, he found out that there's a lot more to Japanese Buddhism than just the image that uh, Westerners have. Most people come to a temple, uh, if they're not there for a funeral, they're there to make a, a prayer or buy an amulet, a protective amulet, to help them uh, get good health or graduate or uh, do well on a test. Uh, I'd say uh, temples make a lot of money from selling amulets. And um, uh, most people go because it's a chance to, you know, you keep the, the, the Shinto gods happy and you keep the Buddhas happy and maybe uh, your life will go well. Uh, so he was very surprised, I think, to see that uh, there was not, it was very hard to find a place for him to sit Zazen. Now, he's uh, a Zen priest in Mexico, and we contacted a number of uh, monasteries uh, and said, could he just come for a while? It's his first real exposure to Japanese Zen. And I think the number of doors that were closed because of language, they were afraid he doesn't speak Japanese, he's unfamiliar with the customs. The Japanese Zen world here is really very, very closed, and they shouldn't be. One of the great things is that we've become open. If you are sincere, if you stick with the Zen path, there are opportunities to find a teacher, there are opportunities to train, even after a while to ordain, but in Japan, you know, when I lived here for 20, 25 years, there's a glass ceiling. Unless I'm the son of a father with a temple, it's, and uh, unless, of course, I'm willing to speak Japanese, and unless I, I'm willing to train in the Japanese system, there's very few opportunities for just an ordinary guy to become a Buddhist priest. I know some people have done it, but it's, it's really difficult. Fortunately, my teacher opened doors for foreigners and other people who love Zazen, and he made a way for us to train as priests. But, boy, it's really tough. And I know many foreigners who have come and gone into the Japanese system, and, uh, you know, it's tough, of course, physically tough, mentally tough. It's difficult to survive. And the people who come out of the system tend to be a certain kind of person who has gone through that, and then is going to inherit their dad's temple. So if you ask me, the training of priests right now in the West, in the United States, has a lot of strengths. Now, we miss out on some things that the Japanese have far and beyond us. You know, they have the, the beauty of ceremony, the beauty of ritual, just throwing yourself into tradition. And in the West, we're a little crazy and loose on these things. Uh, we, we, we tend not to emphasize the, the ritual and ceremony so much. But if you ask me, 
I think the training opportunities in the United States now are excellent. And uh, if I had a choice between training in Japan and training in the U.S., I would take the U.S. hands down. So you've talked about training in the West being different. Um, I guess Zen in the West and Zen in Japan is very, very different then from what you're describing. While the foundations are the same, the way it's approached, the way it's taught, the way people experience it is very different. Yes, yes. And I, but I, I have to say, I used to be a, a big critic of the funeral culture of Japanese Buddhism, the, the fact that it seems to train these young monks just to do funerals, just to do memorial services, until the great tsunami. Yes. And that changed my view of the power and beauty of Japanese Buddhism. You know something? Funerals are important. At that time, there were so many people who lost a loved one, and the priests went in, and they didn't give zazen. They didn't give uh, particularly psychological counseling. There were a few priests who did that. They gave the power of saying goodbye, the funeral. So it's part of the glue that holds Japanese society together. I don't mean to say that the priest just doing funerals is, is somehow wrong. It's not. It's, it's a beautiful and necessary part of life. Okay, that said, Zazen is important. And in the West, we tend to be all about Zazen. And I think that's an excellent thing. And we also tend to be about taking this outside the monastery, bringing it to life, bringing it to lay people. And in that is our great strength. And that's something that never really happened in Japan. Uh, lay people with an interest in, in Zen and bringing out into the world are, are few. In the West, Buddhism is permeating the society, and I think it's excellent. It's a revolution. Yes, there, there are a few Japanese people who've done that. Wasn't um, Homeless Kodo one of them? Wasn't that book of his that's translated in English a series of newspaper articles, essentially? Yeah, no, no, that's true. No, there, there are people like homo, homeless Kodo, but he, he's kind of a, a rarity. And there, you know, the Zen priests uh, uh, do uh, give homilies to their parishioners, and, uh, but it's, it, it's have small effect. Homeless Kodo never really had wide effect in, in the society. The, the uh, Zen institutions and other Buddhist uh, institutions are basically contacted by Japanese because of funerals, they do not have wide moral influence. It's not as if there's, for example, a social problem and someone necessarily on the TV goes running to ask the Buddhist priest for a moral verdict. <laughs> uh, uh, no, uh, this is much more seen in the U.S., and I think it is uh, something that we have contributed to the history of Buddhism that is unprecedented. Maybe in uh, some other cultures like Thailand, the people run to priests more uh, to get their opinion on all kinds of societal issues. Uh, but in the West, for the first time, uh, Buddhism is really stepping out of the monastery. So before the show, you told me that I had to lead into a discussion you wanted to have about, is it a teaching, a Buddhist teaching by Paris Hilton? The great, yes, the great teaching of Paris Hilton Roshi, 
that Paris she Hilton offered Roshi. all of us. Yes, yes. Okay. you remember Paris Hilton. She's. I know, think she used to be famous for being famous, but I haven't heard that name in years. That is exactly right. She's the, the rich girl who was famous for being famous. And uh, she did something that... Uh, was kind of shocking, kind of funny, but really has uh, an important lesson for all of us who are interested in Eastern teachings. She had a friend who had vaguely Asian features. I think he was Hispanic. He was an actor, uh, an actor she knew in Hollywood. And she literally got a red tablecloth. Maybe it was a curtain. And she wrapped this guy, he kind of had long hair, he, with vaguely Asian features. She wrapped him in the tablecloth, gave him some book to hold, and went walking, you know, through Hollywood, visiting, you know, various cafes with this friend of hers, who's I, nothing to do with Buddhism, but that was her new guru, her Asian teacher. And the newspapers for a while were filled with, who is Paris, you know, learning from? Who has she, has she become a dis disciple of this great guru? And people were really curious because he had Asian features. And it turned out it was a complete hoax. But what's the And the red robe, which makes it look Tibetan. Exactly. The red tablecloth. Yes. So uh, what was the teaching there? You know, uh, we're getting over this, but the fact of the matter is we still give a lot of credit to anyone who has Asian features as a great teacher and it has become very hard for us to realize that it has nothing to do with how someone looks. Most of the Zen priests I know in Japan are not particularly, I would say, spiritual people. I, I've actually had Zen priests who have a difficult time explaining basic Zen teachings. Uh, it's, it's surprising. You can go through a whole monastery course of training and somehow barely pick up knowledge about Buddhism that the average Westerner knows these days. But yet, if a fellow shows up and has Western features, we tend to kind of somehow doubt that he's uh, necessarily a good teacher. But if he looks like he came from directly from Tibet or, or China or, or uh, Kyoto, yeah, oh, he must be an enlightened being. This was uh, <laughs> certainly true in the 60s. And yeah. a funny thing happened. We got a couple of uh, Asian teachers who came over that they were trying to get rid of in Japan. Ah. Yeah. I'm going to name names. I'm going to name okay. names. Mostly because they're dead. They can't sue me, I guess. Uh, cool. uh, there was uh, Sasaki Roshi yeah. in California. Not to be confused with homeless Kodo Sawaki, Sasaki right. Roshi. Yeah. And there was the infamous Predator uh, Edo Shimano. That was who, the one in New York. You know, you know I, I understand they gave great teachings. They, they, they had the gift of gab, and people were willing to think of them as, you know, enlightened beings. And I'm sure they had many good qualities, except they also fondled students, uh, took sexual advantage, and played psychological games with people. Uh, it's happened in the Tibetan world, too. Uh, one of the reasons they were both sent over here is, uh, as far as I can determine, having researched these subjects, they were uh, troublemakers in Japanese Buddhism and uh, just connected enough that they didn't, like the Catholic Church, you know, they got the troubled priests, they kind of hide mm. them 
they don't kick them out necessarily. Yeah. So they wanted to hide them. They said, go to America. It's far enough away. Get out of, get out of here. So they came to America. They did uh, wonderful teaching in many ways. I know I am not saying they didn't, you know, have uh, some uh, teachings, but uh, basically be- we gave them the benefit of the doubt because they had the look, they had the names, they came from the East, and they must have been uh, fully enlightened beings. And what a mistake that was. So uh, we're getting over it. And as you said, this has happened in the Tibetan uh, sphere as well. Chugyam Trungpa, who gave some wonderful teachings that are collected in books and then have actually created a publishing company, um, he was quite contentious. Um, another uh, Tibetan teacher who's still alive, so we won't mention his name, but had a best-selling book, um, has recently had some issues as well. We have to take who the person is. Now, I often remind people when it comes to these scandals, the scandal doers get all the headlines. So you got one guy who causes, uh, and it's usually a guy, you got one guy who causes trouble, uh, takes advantage of students, and the 250 other Buddhist teachers who cause no problems, just helping people, staying quiet, sincere, they get no headlines. Yeah. You know, it's like the one plane crashes and we don't uh, pay attention to the 10,000 planes that landed safely that day. Yeah, in news they say if it bleeds, it leads. Right. And that's a that's a big mistake. Zen is not and Buddhism in general is not plagued uh by uh, particularly uh, a, a disastrous uh, flood of these uh, evil teachers. There's a small group of people who do some things and cause great harm, just as there are psychologists or medical doctors or school teachers. You know, the, there's the odd high school teacher who sleeps with her student, yeah. uh, but that doesn't mean all high school teachers are sleeping with their students, and it's the same yeah. in the Buddhism world. But anyway, getting back to it, Let's take people, not how they look, not on their name, not on even their pedigree, but what is their record of of teaching? If you have a guy, I don't care if he's from New Jersey as opposed to Lhasa, if if he's a guy from New Jersey who speaks with a New Jersey accent and he doesn't sound, you know, particularly like the Zen master from Kung Fu, (laughs) you know, he's a guy who talks like this, you know. But if what's coming out of his mouth is wisdom, and for 10 years he has a track record of helping people and not harming everyone, listen to that guy. Don't let, listen to the guy who looks the part. We got to get still. We have to learn this lesson, I think, even today. Well, you're naturally going to say that because you don't look the part. I don't look um, the part at all. No, I'm completely you're, biased. You're not Japanese and you've got the Hawaiian shirt on, though you do wear your robes from time to time. Yes. Um, but, but it's a valid point. Of course, the problem is that for someone getting into Zen or any other practice like this, you're influenced by maybe what someone has recommended, what you've read about someone, and you can get drawn into this sort of adulation of the teacher that's um, a very complicated psychological relationship. Uh, in the East, sometimes, they have the guru, and you are to listen to the teacher, throw yourself into loyalty to the teacher, not ask many questions. And in the West, sometimes I think we discount people too quickly, we're, we're, we argue with the teacher, we ask too many questions. 
maybe uh, the the middle way uh, has to be between. But give trust to a teacher as long as the teacher continues to earn that trust. Give the teacher a chance and do what the teacher recommends without arguing overly with the teacher for a time. If after uh, a year or two, I, I know that seems like a long time, but even, even a few months, if it seems like you're being fed a, a, a host of bull, then go find someone else. Walk out the door. And if there's any sign of anything in that group about money or sex or anything that looks untoward or power games, run. Don't walk for the door. But give a teacher a benefit of a doubt and, and try it out. Just like you would, uh, I don't know, uh, a, a, a physical coach, you know, if you're learning exercise. Or a car mechanic, if he fixes your car, give him the benefit of the doubt. But if it doesn't prove after a while, go. However, don't go the other way. You know, I get people and say, oh, Jundo, you are just the most enlightened fellow I've ever met. Every word out of your mouth has changed my life. I have never met every, anyone like you. I feel some great karmic connection. I say, hey, cool it. I'm going to disappoint you. That's my job. You need to stand on your own two feet. My only job is to help you stand on your own two feet and become your own source of wisdom. And I'm just an advisor. We have a nice saying in Zen that I'm not a teacher. I'm a Zen friend, a mentor. And you should have many, not just one teacher, have many teachers, you know. Anyway. Okay, I, I will take uh, as a hint what you said earlier that we ask too many questions of Zen teachers, and perhaps I will stop asking questions for today. So where do we go from here, Roshi? What, do you think I know everything? I have no idea. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. Please give us a rating, tell your friends, you can check out past episodes at our website, zen-of-everything.com. And if you want Jundo to answer your questions, send us an email at podcast at zen-of-everything.com. Thanks for listening.